Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Given the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and the focus on issues of racial inequities in the wake of police shootings of African Americans, this is a political campaign season unlike any other in recent memory. With about a week remaining before the election, it's time to check in with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson on where things stand in the final stretch of the campaigns. Professor Pearson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be with you. The political divisiveness in this country makes many citizens cynical of government, and there's a strong belief that government cannot function effectively in today's highly polarized political climate. So let's start the interview with perhaps some rare positive news. The Minnesota legislature passed a nearly $1.9 billion bonding bill. How did the state Republicans and DFL come together to pass such an enormous piece of legislation? Well, this was actually a surprise. This was the fifth special session, um, of course, coming right before the election. And the bonding bill requires a supermajority. So it has to be bipartisan by definition to pass. And of course, uh, the DFL controls the state house. Minnesota Republicans control the state Senate. And so they had to pass it in both chambers and come together. Um, but I think the key was having a uh, provisions in the bonding bill that helped legislators of both parties in their districts. And I think looking to re-election, um, all senators and, and legislators are up for re-election this fall. And so looking to re-election, looking at how they could help their districts, and also uh, with the pandemic uh, and the economic suffering that results from the pandemic, I think that you know a supermajority of legislators just realized that this would be helpful for the state's economy and helpful for their own re-election. Is it surprising to you that the Republicans in DFL could reach a compromise while the GOP is so at odds with Governor Walls on state restrictions and mandates put in place due to COVID-19? Yes, I was surprised. And I think uh, a lot of observers were as well. But I think at the end of the day, legislators in both parties were thinking about knocking on doors and talking to constituents and thinking about their electoral incentives um, to bring to bring projects back to their districts and to help the economy of the state when so many people are suffering because of COVID. Let's talk about the state's response to COVID-19 and how divisive that has been between the GOP and the DFL. How much do you think the pandemic will weigh in voters' minds at the polls this year for both the state and national races? Well, it is the issue of the 2020 elections. That's true at the presidential level, and that's true um, in, if we look at legislative races in the state of Minnesota. And so I think voters are looking at, at how um, their representatives have responded, but there is a divide. Um, if you look at both national polls and polls within Minnesota, um, whereby Democrats think that restrictions are appropriate and in some cases have not gone far enough, and Republicans are more likely to say that uh, the restrictions are too too onerous and that more should be open. And so there is a debate over this. And I think that for the most part, um, not completely, but for the most part, sort of partisans um, have fallen in line on this. And so the cues that Republicans are getting um, from Republican leaders are that uh, Governor Waltz and the DFL has been too restrictive. And the cues that Democratic voters are getting from DFL leaders are that um, Republicans want to open things up too much. And so 
there are two competing narratives. And for the most part, public opinion uh, data show that partisans are supporting the messages from their own party leaders on this. President Trump gets low approval ratings for his handling of the pandemic. Will this potentially impact Republicans running in Minnesota in down-ballot races? Yes, um, it will, because increasingly elections have become nationalized. There used to be a lot of split ticket voting, whereby someone might vote for a presidential candidate of one party, um, but really like their own individual member of Congress or state legislator uh, and break with their party to vote for, say, a, a popular incumbent. But increasingly, political science research shows that there is just much less split ticket voting. So if someone is voting for uh, Biden at the top of the ticket, it is likely that the down ballot races will go Democratic as well. Um, And the same is true for Trump. If people are supporting Trump at the top of the ticket, they're much more likely to vote for Republicans the rest of the way down the ticket. And so the fact that independents and Democrats don't think that the president has done a good job handling COVID could affect Republicans, um, even those who are trying to distance themselves from the president. In the Minnesota legislature, the DFL controls the House and Republicans control the Senate. Has there been much polling to indicate whether control of either legislative body could shift in this election? So interestingly, Minnesota is the only state in the country with uh, a two-chamber legislature where one party controls each chamber. So um, that alone is very interesting. And of course, uh, the margins are narrow. And so it, you know, this will be an incredibly high turnout election, um, more so than even the high turnout midterm election in 2018. And so polls suggest that the state Senate could go either way. Um, There are some vulnerable DFL incumbents, but there are some vulnerable Republican incumbents as well. And so I think it is just really too close to call. 2020 is a census year. Will this election affect how redistricting lines will be drawn in Minnesota? Yes. Um, And this is true all across the country, because uh, in most states, although an increasing number are doing things differently, but in most states, the legislature starts the process, the state legislature. And so if both chambers of the legislature are of the same party, they are more likely to draw district lines, both for the state legislature and for Congress, that favor that party. Um, And if there's divided party control, they are more likely to draw sort of neutral lines, um, lines that may not benefit one party or the other in particular. Um, For the last two cycles, Minnesota's redistricting plans have been under divided government and actually wound up uh, in the courts. And so if we have unified party control um, with uh, DFL Governor Waltz, who of course is not on the ballot, and a DFL State House um, and State Senate, I think it is likely that the lines that are drawn will favor Democrats. Um, If there's divided party control, maybe they could reach a bipartisan as an agreement, or um, maybe it would go to um, the courts. The other dynamic in Minnesota in particular is that Minnesota is on the cusp of losing a congressional seat. Um, Right now we have eight House seats. We almost lost one 10 years ago, um, and it is possible that we could lose one now. So no matter what happens, the lines need to be redrawn to have equal numbers of people because of population shifts. But it is definitely possible that in Minnesota, uh, the congressional districts could go from eight to seven. Let's look now at the eight U.S. House seats in Minnesota up for re-election. Five seats are held by Democrats, three by Republicans. Is this expected to change? And if so, which districts are most likely to flip? Well, (laughs) 
Minnesota was so interesting in 2018 because half of the districts flipped, um, but because two flipped in the Democratic direction and two flipped in the Republican district, there was no net change um, in, in party control uh, in the partisan distribution of five Democratic seats and three Republican seats in Minnesota. Um, in Minnesota this cycle, the first district, um, currently held by Republican Representative uh, Hagedorn, is very close. Uh, the Cook Political Report just recently moved it into the toss-up category, and Dan Fian, um is challenging Hagedorn again. So this was very close in 2018 and will be very close again. Interestingly, the district was won in 2016 by Trump by 15 points. And so it is, it's a very close congressional race, but I suspect the district will go to Trump, and so that could help Hagedorn with his re-election. Minnesota's 7th district, um, which was actually not that competitive two years ago, um, is very competitive, also ranked a toss-up. Democratic incumbent Colin Peterson has held the seat since 1990. He is the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee and very popular um, because of his uh, work on agriculture issues. However, this is one of the most Republican districts in the state. It went for Trump by 30 points in 2016. And for the most part, Colin Peterson has staved off really strong challengers. But that is not the case in 2020, in that Michelle Fishbach, former state senator, actually lieutenant governor for a short time, she is competing against Colin Peterson. She is well known to voters, having represented part of the district and raising a lot of money. So this race is too close to call um, in 2020. Other districts um, are somewhat competitive, but less so. Um, and so I think it's really the first district and the seventh district are the ones to watch. Perhaps the wildest and already most contested race is the state's second congressional district between incumbent Angie Craig and Republican opponent Tyler Kistner. After the death of Adam Weeks, the uh, candidate for the Legal Marijuana Now Party, Secretary of State Steve Simon stated there will be a special election in February. Craig sued, and a federal judge sided with her that the election should proceed as planned. What impact did Simon's comments and Craig's lawsuit have on the race, and do you think the results in this race might be eventually contested? I do think that it's possible that this will be contested. What we don't know is whether or not there were large numbers of voters who didn't vote during the time when they thought that the election was going to happen on February 9th. Now, the, there's always drop off down ballot um, during a presidential election, uh, but I think it, one open question is how much drop off there will be. On the other hand, if this election were delayed until February 9th, um, as the Minnesota law suggested that it should be, there would be a massive drop-off in turnout because so few people would turn out in an unusual election. Um, you know, turnout in the presidential election in Minnesota in 2016 was 74%. And I just can't imagine turnout in a February 9th race where only uh, two or three candidates are actually on the ballot in one congressional race um, would generate that much turnout. And so I think the controversy surrounding this will remain. But one interesting question that we won't know until probably several days after the election is how much drop off was there and how close is the margin between the candidates? Several recent controversies have plagued the Hagedorn campaign. Hagedorn is accused of using taxpayer dollars to pay companies owned by his staff, having a rent-free campaign office in Mankato, and using his position to get his wife, who is the chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota, Jennifer Carnahan, free guided tours at national parks. How serious are these alleged ethics violations, 
And do you think they will impact Hagedorn's chances of being reelected? Well, clearly they are affecting his chances of being reelected. In a district that was favored by Trump in 2016 by 15 points, um, you know, Hagedorn should be way ahead by now. But the race is a toss up with both candidates raising a lot of money, although interestingly, there's less outside money in the race this year. Um, and so I think that that these issues and questions are affecting the race. I think the question for the congressional race is whether enough people will vote for Trump at the top of the ticket and for Fian for Congress, in other words, splitting their ticket between uh, candidates of two different parties, or whether or not uh, Trump supporters will sort of put their questions aside and vote for Hagedorn. Um, sort of what happens with these ethics concerns after the election, um, I think depends in part on the, the election results. Um, will the House Ethics Committee take this up after the election? Um, I think it depends whether or not he's reelected. Let's talk about the major issues the House candidates are running on this year. Is this election all about Trump and which candidates oppose or support him? Or are there other local issues, such as mining perhaps, that will influence voters' decisions? This election is primarily about President Trump. Um, President Trump and his handling of COVID, President Trump and his personality, um, and President Trump and uh, sort of his enthusiasm for him among Republicans. Presidential re-election bids are generally a referendum on the incumbent, and this is no different. Local issues matter, um, uh, particularly, I think, in uh, competitive races where voters may be thinking, for example, in Minnesota's 7th district uh, about agriculture or uh, Minnesota's 8th district about mining, but really um, the national issues of the economy, COVID-19, and healthcare are, are dominating the ads um, and voters' concerns. Senator Tina Smith is facing former Representative Jason Lewis. Lewis lost his House seat in 2018. Is he perhaps in a better position to win a statewide seat? Well, up until very recently, Lewis has been down in the polls considerably, um, outside the margin of error, um, but that has changed with the most two recent polls. So I think that Minnesota's vote at the presidential level will mirror the Senate vote relatively closely. Um, I think Senator Smith will get uh, a little bit of a bump because she has served um, for more than two years in office already. She's uh, won election once, and then that was a special in 2018 after she was appointed um, in 2017. And so she needs to run for the six-year term in 2020. So she'll get a boost for uh, the things she has done as an, as an incumbent, uh, the way she has traveled the state, connected with voters across party lines. But for the most part, not a lot of voters split their tickets these days. And so I think Trump's fortunes in Minnesota will um, mirror Jason Lewis's fortunes. He has the advantage of having represented um, an eighth of the district in Congress. But of course, he lost re-election in 2018 uh, when running as a one-term incumbent against Angie Craig. What do the polls say right now about the presidential race in the state? Biden has enjoyed a considerable lead in the polls uh, for most of this cycle. He is still ahead, although they've tightened somewhat. Um, Minnesota went for Clinton by only a percentage point and a half in 2016. And after that, uh, President Trump himself noted that the margin was close and he began visiting Minnesota, really trying to turn Minnesota red at the presidential level, um, gaining Minnesota's 10 electoral votes. 
It is still a state that leans Democratic, although both parties are uh, campaigning relatively hard in Minnesota. I would sort of consider it a second tier swing state. Um, it's not uh, a Florida or an Ohio, which are truly up for grabs, and that it leans Democratic. But it is conceivable um, that a Republican could win statewide, whether that's at the presidential level or at the at the Senate level, even as um, both the polls and conditions favor the Democratic candidates right now. It's also notable that turnout in 2016 was down in Hennepin County compared to 2012 and 2008. And um, Hennepin County, of course, is uh, uh, full of Democratic voters. And so that also hurt Hillary Clinton. Yes, uh, the northern part of the state um, did go for Trump by uh, greater margins than it had for Romney in 2012. But lower turnout in the most Democratic part of the states definitely hurt Clinton as well in 2016. And so for both candidates, turnout will matter. Um, it's sort of a matter of where the turnout goes up. Aside from the COVID-19 pandemic, the other major 2020 event in Minnesota was the death of George Floyd and the ensuing protests and civil unrest. Will this have an impact on how voters in the state cast their ballots? There's no doubt that voters on both sides of the aisle are thinking about these issues. Um, they're thinking about them in different ways. Uh, Democrats are thinking about racial justice, um, structural inequality, and Republicans are thinking about law and order. And these are the cues that they are also getting from their party leaders. But I don't think that these issues are swaying many voters. I think they sort of fit into a pre-existing and partisan narrative and framework um, that, that heightens these issues and makes them more salient. It, but I don't think that it actually switches very many votes in either direction. That's not to say that independents um, might not be swayed by arguments from one party or the other, but independents are also generally paying less attention to politics and also thinking about uh, issues like COVID and the economy. Do you see any similarities between the 2020 presidential election and the 1968 presidential election where Richard Nixon's law and order platform resonated with many voters. I see some similarities, um, but one difference between 2020 and 1968 is that partisan identity is much stronger among partisans on both sides of the aisle, and re Republicans are more consistently conservative and Democrats are more consistently liberal. So in 1968, there were a lot of Democrats, both serving in elected office and uh, across the country, who were actually pretty conservative. Um, and likewise, in 1968, there were some Republicans who were more moderate or even liberal uh, in the Northeast. And the parties are just more internally homogenous um, these days, uh, despite the factions in them. I know some people listening will sort of point to the factions within the parties, and those do exist. But relative to 1968, Republicans are more consistently conservative and Democrats are more consistently liberal. Lawyers for both parties are gearing up for potential legal challenges to the election. We're already discussing the likelihood of more lawsuits affecting the second district race. Do you think Minnesota We'll see other election drama, recounts, contested ballots, things of that nature. I think it very much depends on how close these races are. Um, so as we know, uh, there's an automatic recount if uh, a race is very, very close. We saw that. We saw that in 2008 with Al Franken defeating Norm Coleman uh, in July after the election, July 2009. Um, and then we saw that with the governor's race with uh, Mark Dayton and Tom Emmer. And so there is the possibility um, that of a prolonged election if it's very close. 
I mean, we don't know what's going to happen on election night, but we do know that Minnesota can start counting ballots before election day, and that will help things go more smoothly. Voters can also track their ballot to know whether or not it has been received and counted. Um, and so I don't think it's likely that we'll know the results of every race on election night. And because um, in Minnesota, votes that are mailed on election day can still be counted up to seven days after the election. We definitely won't have official vote counts um, until seven days after the election. Some races may be uh, sort of, uh, the margins may be wide enough to call them on election night. So I think voters do need to be prepared for um, an election night where we don't know all of the results. And I don't know if that's the presidential level or at the statewide level. Um, certainly, I think that will be the case in some close legislative races. It will be a different election. But because of Minnesota's sort of, you know, careful election administration, I don't think it's likely that we'll see drama based on any fraud. There's been no proven fraud in Minnesota. President Trump has made mail-in voting a political issue. Many Minnesotans have voted early and many have already sent in absentee ballots. Do we get a sense of what that tells us about the potential outcome of the election? Would that early voting trend uh, be more beneficial to Biden or to Trump? Do we know this? Well, so Minnesotans have, uh, I I think, cast around one million ballots already. And nationally, um, more than 42 million have been cast. And so this is a very important phenomenon in this election. And state laws vary about how exactly this works. But clearly, because of concerns about COVID and because of just um, intense interest in the race on both sides of the aisle, many people are voting early. Um, In general, sort of over the course of many elections, there's no evidence that Uh, voting early helps Democrats. Um, In fact, I think all else equal, it often helps Republicans. This election is different. More Democrats have voted early than Republicans. And I think that is a function of two things. One, Democrats on polls have been shown to have higher concerns about COVID. And also uh, President Trump's message about mail-in voting, I think, has been received by many Republican voters, but certainly not all Republican voters. I mean, there are Republican governors who favor mail-in ballots and have made that clear. And so I think Democratic voters are getting pretty consistent messages from party leaders uh, about the value of voting early by mail, and Republicans are getting mixed messages. And so as a result, more Democrats have voted early. And in states that can count their ballots in advance, those totals will be clear on election night. In states that cannot count their ballots in advance, um, it could look like a Republican is winning on election night only to have a Democrat come out ahead after all of the ballots are counted. And so that could be complicated. Complicated is not the same thing as fraud. Um, I think just complicated in terms of the messaging. But, you know, a ballot cast legally and counted legally is, you know, equal to any other vote that's done in person on election day. Given the unprecedented number of voters voting by absentee ballot, Do you have concerns about uh, spoiled ballots, people not filling them out correctly, not uh, putting their signature in the right place? Um, Do you have concerns that we might see more ballots thrown out than we would normally when there would be less mail-in voting? Yes. In every election, there are ballots thrown away because of voter error. Um, And that is unfortunate. And again, in Minnesota, we're lucky in that people can track their vote through the Secretary of State's website to see whether or not 
uh, an absentee ballot that has been mailed in has been recorded. And so it would be great if all voters across the country could do that. Um, and then if their vote is not recorded, um, go in and vote on election day. But I do have concerns about that because it happens in every election. And if early voting is disproportionately done by one party over the other, it could impact the results as well. Given the pandemic, it has to have been more challenging for both parties to try and get out the vote and get people registered to vote. In your perspective, and I know the University of Minnesota is uh, operating largely remotely this semester, how difficult has it been for students to get involved in politics this year in terms of efforts to get students to register to vote? Do you have concerns that because there have been fewer uh, students on campus, that kind of organizing ability may be limited due to the pandemic? Yes. The University of Minnesota led uh, the nation in terms of the vote, in terms of college vote in 2018. So Minnesota should be very proud of that. And and the good news about that is that once someone votes in one election, they're more, more likely to vote in the next election. But this, this is a problem. Fortunately, in Minnesota, with same-day voter registration, um, that can ease some of the concerns. Voters can be mobilized right up until election day. But the other good news about our young people is that they are just incredibly connected via social media. And so uh, they're, you know, they're plugged in in ways that um, even teaching them were sort of uh, hard for me to, to comprehend just how plugged in they are. And it's really great. And so assuming that their networks are spreading information about registering to vote, requesting an absentee ballot, et cetera, you know, that's that's the good news. The bad news is, of course, you know, not all students um, are interested in politics or in networks that are doing that. And so I'm interested to see what turnout is um, at the University of Minnesota in 2020. My students, of course, are extremely engaged, um, but they're taking a political science class, so they're hardly a representative sample. Catherine Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Pearson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. The spread of misinformation on social media is prompting platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok to more closely police their content. That raises concerns for some who question whether the censoring of posted content violates First Amendment rights. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, we're joined by University of Minnesota Scylla Professor of Media, Ethics, and Law, Jane Kirtley, who will discuss these and other freedom of speech issues that have been in the news lately. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.